do I know what will happen in Vermont's future? Gosh, I don't. And if I did, I would make a whole lot of money from that crystal ball. But I think um, as long as we continue to engage as leaders and in, engage in these difficult conversations, I think we can prevent what is happening in Montana, what is happening in Oklahoma and in Tennessee from happening right here in our own state. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Across the U.S., LGBTQ rights are under attack. To date, 471 bills targeting LGBTQ people have been proposed throughout the U.S., including in every state in New England. 18 Republican-controlled states have passed laws banning gender-affirming health care, affecting one in four transgender youth. In Montana, State Representative Zoe Zephyr, who is transgender, was ousted from the Republican-led House of Representatives last week for her passionate statements objecting to a ban on hormone treatments and surgical care for transgender children that was just signed into law by Montana Governor Greg Gianforte. A Nebraska lawmaker is being investigated for a supposed conflict of interest in opposing gender-affirming health care, Her alleged conflict? She is the mother of a transgender child. Leading medical organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, support gender-affirming care and warn that bans pose serious health risks to young people. I spoke about the wave of anti-LGBTQ attacks with Vermont Representative Taylor Small, who is among just eight out transgender state legislators in the country and is the first out trans legislator in Vermont. Small was elected in 2020 to represent Winooski. A graduate of Colchester High School and the University of Vermont, Small is also the education program manager at the Pride Center of Vermont, where we had this conversation. We began by listening to State Representative Zoe Zephyr's final speech on the floor of the Montana House of Representatives before being censured and ousted. Here is Representative Zephyr. Today, I rise in defense of those constituents, of my community, and of democracy itself. Last week, I spoke on the governor's amendments to Senate Bill 99, which banned gender-affirming care. This was a bill that was one of many targeting the LGBTQ community in Montana. This legislature has systematically attacked that community. We have seen bills targeting our art forms, our books, our history, and our health care. And I rose up in defense of my community that day, speaking to harms that these bills bring and that I have firsthand experience knowing about. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. And when the speaker asks me to apologize what he is, uh, on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He is asking me to be complicit 
in this legislature's eradication of our community, and I refuse to do so, and I will always refuse to do so. I asked Representative Taylor Small her response to this speech by Zoe Zephyr. I think Representative Zephyr's speech really showed us the power of authentic leadership. Uh, As she highlighted throughout her speech, she has had to be there on the front lines, really fighting and pushing back against legislation that is eradicating identities from history, from teaching, as well as eradicating our existence in when it comes to access to health care, which is the, the final bill, I would say, where she had to take a stand and was eventually silenced through the process and saying, you no longer have a say in what legislation is being taken up. You no longer have a say for your community members and for the people you represent as to what the impact will be. And I do have to say, though her language was pointed in talking about seeing the blood on their hands, she highlighted exactly the the reality that we hear so often from trans youth and from families with trans youth, is that these bills are killing our youth. They are showing them that there is no hope for their future where they can be thriving trans adults. And yet when we have representatives like Zoe, like myself, or I think of even Representative Maury Turner in Oklahoma, who was censured earlier this year for a very similar reason, I think we are trying to show that beacon of hope, that you can still be involved, that you do have leadership qualities, and not only can you participate, but you can have a fulfilling life at the end of the day. You stand in a similar well of a similar chamber as Zoe Zephyr does in Helena, Montana, and you do in Montpelier, Vermont. I've seen video of her speaking there and of a body comprised largely of older white people, men and women, and the intensity of this young trans legislator having to speak on behalf of her whole community, not just in Missoula that she represents, but clearly to a national uh, community. You know what it feels like. What do you think was going on for her as she stood there with so much hate-filled language being directed at her, being misgendered by her colleagues? Um, How close do you feel to that experience? You know, Representative Zephyr really embodied the, the courage that we see from firsts across our nation. Um, as I heard very clearly when I ran for office and won, uh, being the first is is amazing, and it's a testament to progress that we see in our history. Uh, but it's also very lonely because of exactly the burdens that you highlighted. When we are speaking, we are not speaking simply for our constituents, but we are speaking for a community that has not had a seat at the table and has not had the opportunities to affect legislation in the ways that we have and will continue to do. And I think what is a a significant difference between uh, the Montana legislature and the Vermont legislature is the way that I have been accepted and welcomed into that space, that when people saw difference, they saw that as an opportunity for connection and being able to have those difficult conversations, which is what I highlight so often about Vermont, is that uh, though we are not immune from the hatred that we're seeing across the nation, we are still engaging in those really difficult conversations. And I think it's when we hit that, that 
part of polarization. When we start separating ourselves and seeing difference as a way to truly distance ourselves from others is when we are going to see that same polarization within our communities. And I think we are seeing that now, especially in the uptick in um, anti-trans narratives that we're seeing coming out of Burlington or as we're seeing out of Randolph, where these issues were not issues prior to. I hear so often from my community of uh, trans siblings, trans relatives, trans friends that they have grown up with and seen to have thriving and fulfilling lives. And they said, I never saw it as an issue. It was just who they are. And yet now when we get caught up in the national rhetoric around um, transness as a political ideology or this uh, political rhetoric rather than actual people's lives, um, I think that's what I fear also at the end of the day, is that that polarization will come and set in in Vermont. And why I I try my best to continue to engage uh, in those conversations, because though it is not the onus of the folks uh, participating in or or being the recipient of that oppression, but instead recognizing that that oppression is uh, actually in interrupting all of our lives at the end of the day, that we are all uh, interacting with that oppression in various ways, but that when we're able to come to the table, when we're able to see each other in our complexity and our humanness, is where we're able to get in Vermont where we're not debating people's identities and lives on the floor. Instead, we are celebrating, honoring, and really cementing those rights to bodily autonomy, uh, gender expression, and identity. And I think that's where I, I see the difference between Representative Zephyr and I, is that she is still having to fight to see her own humanity recognized, let alone the humanity of our entire community. Tell me your connection to Representative Zoe Zephyr. You know, what is really interesting is uh, Zoe actually cold called me before she ever even ran for office. Um, And as I picked up the phone, I was so surprised that this uh, trans woman from Montana was reaching out to me over in Vermont asking what it's like to run. And my first reaction was, gosh, our states are very different. I was like, I'm from a, a very blue progressive state and and your state has become very red. So I don't know how much I can help in this process, but let me tell you what worked and also let me get you connected with other folks who might have similar experiences. And um, the connection felt very instantaneous over the phone. She has a very bubbly and effervescent personality um, which was only matched when we finally got to meet in person in December of last year, um, where we went to a shared conference uh, in D.C. And she just has this tenacity for her community, this tenacity for um, standing up for what is right that I think resonated with everyone around her. And um, I think it was really telling when she finally came back to her community this past week um, after being censured, and there was a, a crowd of thousands of people just celebrating her and what she had done and what she stands for. And um, it, uh, it has been such a joy to watch her progress through this, even through the, the trials and tribulations that she's experiencing, um, because she is not letting this take her down. And instead, she is seeing, saying, if you are removing me from this platform, removing me from being able to speak in this space, 
then I will find and make my own platform and will continue to speak up on the issues that are most important to me and my community. Sounds like they picked on the wrong legislator. Oh, absolutely, they did. (laughs) I was so struck that the thing that she was specifically accused of doing was violating decorum. It's the same rule that was supposedly broken by the two youngest African-American state legislators in Tennessee, uh, decorum, which, you know, in my mind, it's about the perception of the natural order of things. You know, where essentially the older white people who run these bodies get to run these bodies and no one gets to get in the way. Um, But what are your thoughts on this idea of decorum now being used to silence people? Well, I think that is the the opposite of what decorum was set up for and established within our systems, at least in the way that I see it. Uh, To exactly what you said, I see decorum as the way of being able to participate in civil debate and leaving personalities aside, but being able to really truly focus on the issues and live into that ideal that every single person in that body has equal representation and equal rights, that each of us has one vote and that is our voice for our community. And yet when we see decorum being used against people with marginalized identities, people that uh, have not had that seat at the table and are just now getting into that building, it's really troubling to know that the same rules that were set up to allow for those uh, thorough debates are also now silencing folks from being able to participate in that process overall. And so I I worry. I worry about the ways that we have used rules that have very much been embedded in this idea of of gatekeeping who gets to be at the table. But I, I hold that contradiction, that I see it this way, and yet I also know that these rules that have been long established have intentionally been set up to make sure that the the forward narrative, the the common narrative of the folks is what is actually heard. And instead, what we do is silence the voices of those who are seen to be at the margins or are seen to be minoritized within our communities. The wave of anti-LGBTQ laws in the country is now approaching 500. It's in over 20 states. Um, It's the laws that are being proposed Some of them ban minors from attending drag shows, prevent trans youth from receiving gender-affirming care, and restrict their participation in high school sports. Um, And that is exactly what's being proposed in in Montana. Um, Put this in personal terms. What would this have meant for you in your life to have been denied gender-affirming care, participation in school sports, Maybe share some of your journey. Yeah, I, uh, you know, what is really interesting about my journey is that growing up, uh, trans identities were not something that was discussed, that were open, that were publicly viewed. And if they were in the public narrative or discourse, or in particular, modern media, they were pretty much disparaging. They were seen as uh, we, as trans people, were seen as a a mockery of a joke um, or ones who were more prone to experience violence from our communities. And so it was actually in my graduating year of high school, 2012, when uh, the Time magazine came out with the cover with Laverne Cox on it, and it was called The Trans Tipping Point. 
saying we have finally reached that time where we can openly discuss and honor trans identities. And yet here we are 11 years later, still debating the humanity of trans people and and where we are allowed to exist and where we are not. And so growing up, my effeminacy um, was really taken as as gayness. So a lot of my peers and even I would say my family members saw that effeminacy and said, oh, okay, well, one day she will just grow up to be gay. And in my senior year of high school, that was the safest thing for me to come out as and understanding that piece of myself. And it wasn't until going into college and having that separation from those who were closest to me and also that ideal time of individualism and being able to have that um, intrinsic thought of, of who am I and what do I want to be in this world that allowed me to really explore that idea of gender identity and what conversations I was allowed to have and what I was not. And so I actually didn't come out as trans until my senior year of college. I like to think of it as kind of a theme in my life of senior year being the closing of the chapter and also an opening of a new identity uh, for myself. And, and where did you grow up and go to college? Uh, right here in Vermont. So I was in Colchester, Vermont at the time and went to the University of Vermont where I had a, uh, I majored in human development and family studies and did a minor in sexuality and gender identity studies. And so when I think of sports bans or when I think of access to gender affirming care, through my youth, I was really afforded the opportunity to participate fully in sports and any sport that I wanted to play in. Um, I remember even in high school, I very much wanted to play rugby. And uh, surprisingly, my high school only had a girls rugby team. And yet they were so embracing of me that I was able to play on the team. We didn't want to rock the boat too much at that time. And so I was the, the manager, if you will, when we went for away games. But I, I still saw that as the piece of, well, why is it that for rugby it, it's this way? And yet for our, our boys' uh, football team, we had, I think it was two girls at the time who were playing on the team with no issue or discourse. And so I, I reflect back on that and think, well, what, what was the importance of playing school sports at that time? And the importance was teamwork, um, bonding and having lasting relationships, uh, most importantly, getting some exercise in after sitting down all day in class. Uh, none of it came to this realm of extreme competition or that um, I wanted to ever have the upper hand on my peers. I wanted to participate with them in the same way that every other person wanted to. And when it comes to healthcare, I think we can recognize that in our nation, healthcare is already extremely difficult to access, whether it is just for preventative care or if you have a serious illness or disease, um, it can take months on end to get in and it costs us uh, millions of dollars each year. And so when I think about gender affirming care for youth, or I think of my own experience in accessing gender affirming care, it was not an easy process by any means, but I felt very lucky to be able to get connected with a provider that was focused on my own journey, that to not come in with this pre-conceived uh, notion of what transition looks like, but instead was saying, what does transition mean to you? What do you want to see out of this journey? And let's have our steps that we're going to take in the medical realm match exactly what is coming up for you in that process. And so when I hear this rhetoric that there is is this quote-unquote grooming happening or that there are these adults that are 
telling youth or telling other trans adults what they must do in order to be trans. That is just not the experience I and, and many, many of my friends have ever had. Instead, what we have seen is multiple barriers to accessing that care um, and having providers that are competent and willing to engage in, in working through that ignorance of what gender-affirming care can look like here in our state. Where do you, where would you be now had you not had the gender-affirming care that you had, which of course is what's happening in much of the country now? Gosh, um, I, I have to say, I, I don't know where I would be. Um, what is really challenging is recognizing that growing up, I didn't, I didn't think long term about my future. Uh, I know early on, I was very determined to be a doctor, and that didn't necessarily work out for me. Um, but that was not the piece that held me back from seeing a long term future. But it was just that I didn't know if I was going to be here. I, I struggled in my adolescence with suicidality and and wondering if I truly had a place in this world or or would be in a place where I would be seen fully and authentically. And I think that struggle carried with me through my college years. And honestly, it wasn't until I was able to come to terms with my transness to share with my community and my family members, both biological and chosen, and saw that I had that wealth of support and love that allowed me the opportunity to even see that that there was more to life, that I could go on and do things such as being a state representative, that I could go on and go farther than that if I wanted to. Um, so to think if, if this was afforded to me at an earlier time, I think I would have seen a brighter future earlier on. And to not have that afforded to me, simply and not even being able to engage in those conversations is truly, I think, what held me back from realizing what my opportunities were or what the potential was for my future, which is where I think so many trans youth find themselves in that, that realm. And why we highlight the fact of suicidality is because it's, it's lacking that hope that there's going to be a better future. What would you want youth who are listening to you now understand and know about suicidal ideation that you experienced? What kept you going through that? What saved you, essentially, from going down that road? Oh, um, I think what's most important is recognizing that none of us can do this alone. Um, we, as human beings, were never meant to be in this world by ourselves. We were always meant to be in community and always meant to be in groups. And so I would say it was my friendships that helped sustain me through and recognize that if it wasn't just for uh, waking up the next day and knowing that I was going to hang out with my best friend and have a really great time, that would keep me going. I think of uh, my dogs. I think of my dogs as a very life-saving mechanism and knowing that what would they do without me the next morning if I wasn't there to be playful with them, to go out and go on a walk and play ball. I, um, I think of my parents. I, I feel very fortunate to have two supportive parents and um, what they would do if I wasn't here. And so sometimes I had to think outside of myself to be able to sustain. But Ultimately, I would say it is our connections that can help heal us at the end of the day. And also recognizing that we don't have to have life all figured out. 
um, especially as a young person, we are so often asked about, well, where are you going to go to college? What are you going to do in this world? What job do you want to have? And I just want to say it's okay to not have those answers yet. It's okay to sit in that unknown and be comfortable in that unknown and instead really live in that moment of what is bringing you joy today? What is allowing you to feel fulfilled today and to sustain through? When did you decide to be to run for office? I mean, there is coming out and there is really coming out, which is running for office. That means putting up lawn signs, telling everybody to look at me and listen to me. Um, talk about that decision. You know, I... Uh, I never truly had the thought to run for office. It was uh, May of 2020 when I got a call from then-Representative Deanna Gonzalez, who was letting me know that she was thinking of stepping down. She was about to have another child and was really focused on her family, especially in the midst of a, a global pandemic. And so she had reached out to say, have you ever thought about running for office? I see your leadership in the community. I see your leadership at Pride Center. And uh, I think your voice is needed in that space. And when she asked if I had thought that of ever running, my first answer was no. No, I hadn't thought about it. I mean, that's not what we typically think of when we think of legislators in Vermont or even nationally. The, the picture that I conjured was someone who was an older, white, straight, cisgender man who had the means or at least the connections to be able to get into this uh, space. And yet, when she was able to share her own story, truthfully, with all the struggles that came up with it, but all the joys, it actually gave me that opportunity to think, could I run for office? And I'm also grateful that she only gave me a deadline of 24 hours to decide. I think that was the most helpful piece um, to get into the race and, and truly see that I could do it. What were you doing in the community before that that put you, you know, in contact with her? Um, well, we have been connected in many ways. One, recognizing the beautiful queer community that we have in Vermont, um, whether that was through drag queen story hours or putting on uh, LGBTQ events for folks to come together is one of the many ways. And then also being the health and wellness program director at Pride Center meant that I was already collaborating with our governmental agencies, such as the Department for Health, and engaging in policy work, especially I think of... Uh, in 2019, when we were working on gender-affirming care and updating our Medicaid standards for providing gender-affirming care. So she really highlighted, this isn't quite different from what you're actually doing. We're just going to change which side of the table you're going to be sitting on. What was the uh, hardest thing about the decision and about actually running for you? Uh, it was the unknown. I think as we were highlighting with Representative Zephyr's case and what I've heard from other trans-elected representatives is that their bodies were not as accepting of them, that they still face to this day this misgendering or only being limited to their trans experience uh, and not seeing the fullness of what their leadership potential is and, and what they have done in their, uh, their roles. And so I worried the same, that I would get into this work, that campaigning in my community would be one thing, but actually being in the building, I would have to fight even harder for people to see the fullness of who I was. And uh, luckily, even through the, the Zoom screens of my first year, was able to find those connections and able to 
show my leadership qualities in a way that resonated with others. And that actually my transness wasn't the wall that prevented folks from connecting, but allowed us to dig a little bit deeper into our shared stories. Did you encounter resistance and even hate by being a public figure or at at that time running to be a public figure? From fellow representatives, no. Um, But I don't want to kind of gloss over the fact that, yes, it was a challenging learning curve, um, both for me and for the folks in the legislature, of making sure to get pronouns right. And I think that's what we saw most often as folks messing up uh, pronouns. But I can say messing up and that it wasn't intentional because each time it was met with an apology or a recognition of, of the mistake, that it was not something that they were meaning to do, but that they were learning through in the process. Um, which was still hard for me, and uh, but was able to overcome, I think, through those, those challenging conversations. Where the hate really came from was uh, online. I think we see that uh, often for marginalized folks and, and women in office in particular, are folks uh, either tweeting or sending direct messages or even hate mail that would say that I, I shouldn't be in my role because of the mental illness that I hold or that um, actually my constituents didn't want me to represent them, which was the the largest and easiest fallacy to push back against because the vote count does not lie at the end of the day. But I think what was really helpful and supportive is through even all of this this hate that was coming in, um, my community time and time again was thankful for that representation and, and came forward and what is typically referred to as a thankless job um, really became... Uh, one where I, I gained a lot of hope for what we can achieve when we really focus on our direct communities and the constituencies that we represent. Uh, Vermont is not immune to this wave of anti-trans bills. I believe two of them were introduced in Vermont this year. Uh, and in response, uh, what has been now, I believe, on the verge of passage or has already passed two reproductive shield bills. So Tell me about both sides of this, beginning with the anti-trans laws that were proposed. Yeah, it was a a troubling year when it came to legislation introduced in Vermont because it was the first year that we have seen uh, directly targeted anti-trans legislation put forward, especially following uh, two years of really working to uh, support the LGBTQ community, in particular the trans community, through laws Uh, banning the LGBTQ panic defense and making it easier for folks to amend their birth certificates. And yet what it really reminded me of is uh, that piece of immunity, that we are not immune from the playbook that is being used across this nation. And I think even the legislation that we saw put forward doesn't recognize the reality of what is actually happening in Vermont, but instead is playing off of this narrative of, of trans people as dangerous folks. And, and in particular, I think what's troubling is thinking of trans youth as dangerous, as I, I heard a colleague of mine say in a, another news clip. And so what what's concerning, and I guess to, to point at the bill directly, when we think of the piece of sports, as we were talking about earlier in sports and schools, when I'm thinking of elementary and middle and high school students playing sports, I don't think of danger. I think of teamwork and camaraderie and, and those uh, the benefits of what school sports mean. 
and to limit the participation of anyone in those sports, let alone what this legislation does is targets trans girls in particular, is that it it doesn't recognize those pieces and benefits of being able to participate in sports together. Um, the other piece of legislation is really focused on provider conscience uh, protections, which I think are very much important in a variety of ways. But I think what we're seeing is the balance here with H89 and S37 is saying that a provider's conscience should not um, prevent someone from being able to access legally protected health care. And so how are we allowing that opportunity for providers to live into their beliefs um, and not participate in, in procedures that they do not deem in line with their conscience, while also protecting the right of the patients themselves and being able to access those procedures? Um, it's a tricky question, for sure, but I think one that we are and will continue to grapple with Though, I think when we think of uh, provider conscience protections, we do have the federal protections already in place that um, do, and we have seen, impact Vermont's providers. By uh, passing, well, they have not yet been passed, right? These reproductive shield laws, where are they at? Um, Actually, both passed out of their respective bodies uh, last week and are headed to the governor's desk. And Governor Scott has indicated he uh, would sign them. Uh, and perhaps by the time this is aired, that will have happened. Um, explain what they do, not just in Vermont, but by having these reproductive shield laws, what it means nationally that Vermont has this on the books. Well, I think it it shows Vermont as this beacon of hope across the nation. When we are seeing state after state limit access to gender-affirming care for all people, um, some that target just trans youth, or we think of limiting abortion care access uh, in other states. What Vermont is saying is that we are putting this shield around our border, that as long as you are in our state as a provider, as a patient, that you are protected by our laws and recognizing that gender-affirming care and reproductive health care are legally protected. So ultimately, we are not changing our laws in this process. We are just saying that Vermont laws apply in Vermont and that if someone is receiving care in another state or they are fleeing uh, persecution in another state, that Vermont is here to protect them. I will recognize that there are are distinct limitations to this law because of the Constitution. And um, I think one of those that folks have brought awareness to is if someone is receiving care in another state by a Vermont provider, whether that is through telehealth or or whatnot, if that person has a case brought up against them while they are still in that state that has those restrictive laws, we cannot protect that person as as they are in that state or even if they were to flee from that state once that uh, charge has been put forward. What we can do is if someone is coming to Vermont for that care, we will protect them even if there is a case filed afterwards because they were in the bounds of Vermont and that is legally protected and therefore does not infringe on another state's laws when it comes to accessing that care. And I think this was really clear for both providers um, and for patients, especially as we've heard from trans youth who are considering where they might go to college or university next year and juggling that piece of, what protections will I have in this state where my school is versus what are the protections that I have at home? 
The number of teenagers and young adults in the U.S. who identify as transgendered has doubled in the past five years, according to a new study from the UCLA Law School. Um, Their study found that uh, about 1.5% of 13- to 17-year-olds and 1.3% of 18- to 24-year-olds identify as transgender. Um, Five years ago, both of those numbers stood at uh, roughly half. What do you think accounts for that? And, you know, it's a, it may address the issue of why people feel something has changed. What do you think has changed? Well, I think what has changed most is visibility and understanding that folks now see not only their identities reflected in others through modern media, through the news, uh, but that they see a level of safety in being able to come out as their true and authentic selves especially for young people, when they're able to have the internet and have this connection across boundaries, um, it really shows that they are not alone in this world. And I would say that's why we've seen such low numbers of trans folks reporting their authentic selves is because they didn't have that safety. They felt like they were going to be the only ones in their community to be able to come out and, and share that piece. And I think it also alludes to this larger conversation that we've been having around gender. And I think everyone has this assumption that anyone who is transgender is going to look for um, medical care or gender-affirming care in the sense of medical interventions, whether that's hormone replacement therapy or surgical intervention. And yet, just as our identities are on a spectrum, so are the interventions that are going to feel most fulfilling. So for some folks, what we see is simply being able to change pronouns or change a name, change the way that they dress, is the gender-affirming care that they need to feel uh, authentic in themselves and feel as though they can, can present themselves in a way where they see themselves but are seen by others. And for others in the mix, it might mean medical interventions such as hormone replacement therapy or surgical interventions. But I think we can't cast this uh, one brushstroke across the entire community as to what that expectation is. And rather, when I see these rising numbers of young folks questioning gender, I think it's questioning the norms of what has been set forth for us. When we look at the way that gender has limited uh, us as people, it has limited who is able to vote. It has limited who is able to access uh, libraries, to access care, um, who have the rights to be able to oversee financials in a, in a situation, or even determine what occupations we would be able to participate in and to receive those wages. And so I think we're seeing this turning point where folks recognize that our identities should never limit our opportunities um, in this world, and that by being able to identify as trans, it allows us to take a step back out of that system and say, where do I truly see myself versus where everyone else is putting me in those specific boxes? Why now? Why do you think we're seeing, you know, in 2023, this wave, almost contagion of anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ legislation? Um Part of this, one can need only follow the money, the same groups, uh, conservative and Christian groups that have been funding the uh, attacks on Roe v. Wade, uh, that have turned this multi-million dollar effort this year to 
uh, targeting LGBTQ rights through so-called parents' rights bills. What is, uh, I guess, first just, you know, the, the question, why now? And what is the link between the attack on reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights? Well, I think this is nothing new that we've seen in politics, Um, whether it's political parties or political affiliations going after and targeting specific groups of people. And um, I think now where where folks are, are finding the resources and following the money is towards what group does the general public have a lot of ignorance around and have a lot of questions. And that is the trans community as we see this growing uh recognition and visibility, it also comes with that backlash of that is not what I grew up with. That is not my understanding of gender. And I need that to be suppressed, or I need that to be brought down uh, for fear that it would grow or fear that more people would identify as this uh, part of themselves. And so when we look at the the overlap, and as we saw with uh, S37 and H39, this overlap of reproductive health care and gender-affirming care, I think it really gets to the base of bodily autonomy and an individual being able to decide what is best for them, uh, for their bodies, um, and for their well-being overall. And so when we have seen attacks fail, uh, specifically in Vermont, around going after and um, reducing access to reproductive health care. We saw this declaration with Proposition 5 and Article 22 saying, no, everyone in the state of Vermont has the right to access bodily autonomy and freedom. And so these bills, I think, cement that um, in Vermont. And I think is uh, where we're seeing this movement on the national scale is that folks recognize bodily autonomy when it comes to reproductive health care. And our growing edge is really how bodily autonomy intersects with gender-affirming care, that um, I think that the hate groups are really focused on the ignorance in our communities that will help limit um, our growth in that area. You uh, signed a letter opposing the Biden administration's proposed changes to Title IX. That's the law that prohibits discrimination based on sex in federally funded education. Um, The Biden administration has... Uh, propose prohibiting broad bans that prevent trans students from playing on sports teams that align with their gender identity as opposed to their sex assigned at birth. Um, What are your concerns about the approach that the Biden administration is taking? Though I appreciate the administration's recognition that broad bans should not be put in place when it comes to access to to sports and schools or access to equal accommodations. What worries me is this idea that we can target discrimination and that targeted discrimination should be allowed in the process. And I think that's what I and the other representatives that signed on to this letter were really highlighting is that the guidance we would have liked to see is recognition that sports are not the issue, that trans identities are not the issue at the end of the day, and that we should not be allowing any form of discrimination in public accommodations, um, whether it is targeted enough um, to the administration's ideal, um, and instead thinking about what are what is the guidance that we can put out that really embraces the continuum and embraces that this is not an issue, nor has it been an issue um, in our communities. I think Vermont has really been a, a model in this, and thinking about AOE's uh, 
policy when it comes to trans students, whether it's in accommodations for bathrooms, locker rooms, participation in sports, and even the Vermont Principal Association's kind of doubling down on that policy and really highlighting that all students are welcome here. All students are welcome to participate in these programs. And so I would rather see us move in the, the other direction of blanket acceptance and recognition of uh, what school sports offer for our students, instead of saying it is okay that we can target this discrimination for specific trans people based on specific factors. I want to shift gears for a minute. Um, You are a drag performer and have often performed under the persona Nikki Champagne. You've helped lead uh, Drag Queen Story Hours. Talk about drag and its role in the community and why you obviously love doing it. Sadly, Nikki Champagne has been put on the shelf as of uh, last year because of all the responsibilities that come up in this uh, work-life balance. But uh, she has really been, might I say, the best political boot camp that I could have ever participated in. From uh, public speaking to uh, speaking to adversity to putting a fabulous look together, she really did it all for me. And um, it it has been an amazing process, gosh, over seven years in Vermont in um, putting on drag shows for the queer community to be able to come together, uh, co-founding the Vermont chapter of Drag Queen Story Hour and getting into, I believe, we made into 12 out of 14 uh, counties here in the state of Vermont and providing uh, these story hours that were requested by the communities that we went into. Uh, so often folks think that we just chose random uh, communities or random libraries that we targeted, but instead we really focused on the communities that were looking for some diversity or communities that said, oh my gosh, I see all of these offerings only in Chittenden County. Why is it never at our library? And we said, well, it can be. All we need is your support in the process. And that meant that we just had these very loving uh, spaces that were created time and time again. And uh, as we talked about earlier in, in receiving hate as a state representative, I would say the most hate that I received online was for doing Drag Queen Story Hours. It was very targeted. And anytime we would go into a new community, there would be this uproar online and the, the libraries would get tens of uh, calls just saying, you need to stop this. You can't allow this to happen. And yet every time the library said, no, we're going to continue on, we support this programming, and every time we would show up and there were no protesters, there was no hate in sight, and instead it just meant that more people with love and care and compassion were showing up. Um, Gosh, I even think about the one in Montpelier that got national uh, news recognition because of someone out of state uh, asking folks to cancel it. And we had over 150 people show up for a story hour, a story hour that happens every single weekend (laughs) for kids. Um, But this time it just so happened to be done by two fabulous drag queens to the point that we did one inside and then we had to go outside to do a whole other one for the folks who weren't able to make it in. And so uh, in a time where we're seeing drag being attacked nationally, whether it's from these story hours to just even public pride parades and celebrations, um, it feels really empowering to be a part of that community and um, 
will always hold a very big piece of my heart um, and a community that I will always stand behind as they uh, continue to be on the front lines for queer and trans representation in some of the most fabulous, unapologetic ways. Why is drag, uh, what's special about it? What is it, how does it fit into LGBTQ culture and its role? I think drag has a, it comes with a lot of responsibility. It comes with the responsibility, of course, of entertaining and putting on events for community. But I also see us as the the history keepers and the storytellers, the ones who continue to recognize where we have come from uh, so that we don't go back to those times and that we know that our rights are not uh, something to be taken for granted. I think it's easier now for queens to be able to point to, look at exactly what is happening around us. We need to stand up. We need to fight back as a community to continue to embrace in that love. And yet prior to that, I think we got a a bit complacent where it was just this fun art form where you got to lip sync or you got to perform on stage and then you were done. Um, But now I see that charge reinvigorated with even our local queens who are really taking taking to the streets, taking to uh, the community to say, no, look at look at where we have been, and look at where we can go. And uh, I think drag really reminds us that we can be unapologetic in who we are, and that there is nothing to be ashamed of or nothing for us to hide, but instead so much for us to celebrate and embrace. Um, so I see drag being an important part of our community and one that will be long-lasting into the future. We are having this conversation at the Pride Center in Burlington, and uh, we are sitting in a room. Well, tell me about the room that we're sitting in, and tell me about who comes to the Pride Center and its role in the community. Well, we are in our library here at the center, which has over 3,000 LGBTQ-inspired uh, or inclusive books, uh, ranging from novels to poetry to nonfiction to biographies. It is uh just about everything. Gosh, I'm even looking at Out in the Mountains, one of the most uh, iconic publications for queer people in uh, the state of Vermont. And uh, this is one of my favorite resources to see ourselves reflected throughout history in, in media. And so the Pride Center of Vermont, as you said, is located in downtown Burlington in the South End um, and is open to anyone in the LGBTQ community who is looking for resources, connection, events, um, emotional support as well, uh, knowing that we have our anti-violence program in-house. And uh, in including uh, health and wellness resources, as I said before, getting connected to providers who uh, are safe and affirming for you. And we see everyone in the community utilizing this space. Um, Of course, we've been able to shift and maneuver, so we also have a lot of online spaces available, recognizing that travel constrictions in Vermont mean that not everyone can make it into the Burlington area to find that community. So we also have online groups for folks to be able to uh, to get together both for support, but also just for that joy and celebration and community. You had... um... In December, you traveled to the White House to attend the signing ceremony uh, with President Biden for the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, which ensures that the federal government will continue to recognize same-sex and interracial marriages, even if the Supreme Court reverses its rulings <clears throat> that uh, that legalize these unions. Um, tell me why you attended, but you also have to tell me what else happened there. 
Um, well, I attended because I was so grateful to receive an invitation from the president to um, go on down to D.C. I believe actually all of our out LGBTQ representatives in the state were invited to attend. So it meant that I was there with uh, former state representative Bill Lippert, which I could not imagine a, a more phenomenal person to be standing with as the signing happened, as he was there with his husband Enrique and uh, fellow representative Brian Sheena. And it was just a, a really heartwarming day on the White House lawn and was only made better because my uh, now fiancé proposed to me on the White House lawn. Following the signing, he was very creative with the proposal as he knew that I would want at least just one more photo from a different angle. And uh, luckily, there were some other participants there who were willing to not only take the photo, but got some video of this uh, iconic moment. (laughs) Were you totally surprised by that? Did you have any inkling that this might happen? Um, I was totally surprised and did not have an inkling. Instead, I uh, was a little sassy with my partner before we left and saying, well, if only you had a ring, you could have proposed to me in front of the White House. I don't know where I got the confidence that he was not prepared and had a ring, but um, he did definitely turn that one out and, and fulfilled that dream. When's the wedding? The wedding is happening in September, so going for a good fall Vermont wedding. Here's hoping for bright foliage and good (laughs) weather. Uh, A last question. You know, in Vermont, we, you know, often take comfort in thinking, well, you know, we're protected here. You know, you have supportive colleagues. You have not suffered this fate of Representative Zoe Zephyr. But how do you reflect on the idea that can it happen here too? You know, Montana was not a place that would have, one would have thought of, would have, you know, supported laws like they're passing now. Um, Could it happen here? Oh, it absolutely could happen here. And, you know, I think back to a time when it has happened here. We think of when we passed civil unions and Take Back Vermont really got re-inspired and fueled uh, to to charge uh, against uh, marriage equality here in the state of Vermont. And so I, I think about it often as to what those protective factors are and what the work is uh, for leaders in this state in preventing such hatred and polarization from, from happening. And I, I look to our Vermont values. I think it we have this... Um, oxymoron, if you will, of of freedom and unity as our state uh, motto, of freedom being each of us having that opportunity to express ourselves in in our own way, and unity being in this together at the end of the day. And so though I am inspired by the conversations I have with my colleagues and from the current leadership model that is really focused on recognizing and celebrating difference Uh, through the process. I think that is something that we have to continue to work on. I think it's when we become complacent and we get stuck in this idea of, well, this is how Vermont has always been and that's how it always will be, is when we are actually uh, doing a detriment to ourselves and to our communities. I think we have to continue to engage in these really difficult conversations as they are coming up and not pushing them to the side. And so... um, Do I know what will happen in Vermont's future? Gosh, I 
don't. And if I did, I would make a whole lot of money from that crystal ball. But I think um, as long as we continue to engage as leaders and in, engage in these difficult conversations, I think we can prevent what is happening in Montana, what is happening in Oklahoma and in Tennessee from happening right here in our own state. Representative Taylor Small, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure.